We come now to our first reading, which is John 10, 1 to 18. As I mentioned, this passage sets out how Jesus is the good shepherd and how he fulfills the role promised in the Old Testament, places like Psalms and in Ezekiel. Let's read what Jesus has to say. John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold but by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, after thinking and praying over the past week and listening to lots of stuff, I have a lot more material than can be squeezed into 30 minutes. In truth, twice, if not three times as much, and most of it, I hope, not waffle or obscurity. So rather than cut, summarize, rush, or just witter on far too long. I want us to take our time over this well-known and well-loved psalm, over two or possibly three Sundays. And I want to ask you to feedback to me, and I'm long enough in the tooth as a pastor to deal with this. And this will not be necessarily our normal pattern. We'll vary our time on different portions of Scripture. I want you to honestly feed back to me at the end of these two or three weeks as to whether or not we have benefited from taking time to really listen to the words of 
one of the most familiar psalms in Scripture. Now, it might be a good idea, and I'd encourage you to think about this, to learn the psalm by heart over uh, the next three weeks. I was listening to one sermon on the psalm, and the preacher began by reciting the psalm in German, which is quite discouraging. I mean, it's hard enough to learn in English. Literally learn it by heart. So you can say it. Sing it even in the shower or on the bus, quietly. Literally learn it by heart. But you can learn Scripture by heart. But spiritually learn it by heart. Allow yourself, as you meditate on walking through a dark valley, to really honestly ask yourself, are you conscious of God with you or not? To allow yourself to be as direct with God as the psalmist is. As you are in the green pasture bits of life. To think how far away from I, I am from God. Have I become more attracted to or do I love the pastures and the waters in which I find myself more than the shepherd? All sorts of stuff. And I just warrant that we will not be able to engage with God's word in that way if we go from one propositional truth to the other with no time for our hearts to catch up. Now, do tell me if you think it's better or worse over the next two or three uh, weeks. And I promise you, I can take it on the chin. Now, in this first study of the psalm, we'll read the psalm in a minute, I want to stand back and look at the psalm as a whole, a kind of high-level view. So let's read it, and there are three things I want to say, and then we're uh, done. So Psalm 23, if you uh, find that in your uh, Bibles. And concentrate. Yeah, don't think you know it. Let's read God's word. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, three things I want us to see at a kind of high level from this psalm. Let me list them, and then we'll look at each in turn. First, it is a psalm of Jesus that you and I can sing. Second, it is a psalm that reveals the Lord's absolute commitment to you and I. 
And then thirdly, I want to encourage you to reflect on your personal experience of what this psalm is saying. So firstly, it is a psalm of Jesus that you can sing. So a good question to ask of any psalm in the Bible, who can sing this psalm? I mean, whose psalm is it? Now, when it's hot, as it has been, and if you're like me, you're secretly longing for the cold winter nights, there's nothing you want to do more, or at least think you want to do in your mind, than to plunge into a swimming pool. And as Christians, when we are in need of encouragement, help, comfort, we might want, and rightly in a sense, to plunge into a psalm like this, good as that may be, rather than plunge into singing or praying it as if it were written just for me. And of course, we have sung this psalm and prayed this psalm and written verses from this psalm on cards and given it to people and preached on this psalm as if it were just for us. Whose psalm is it? It is a psalm of David, God's anointed king, and we know that all Scripture finds its fulfillment in God's Messiah, King Jesus. David, God's anointed king in the Old Testament, just to say that on holiday, some things are the same universally in the church, like nobody sits in the front row, so well done all of you. You had to because you were in the band. And the children's talks... There was a, a great little children's talk, and it was quite complicated, and uh, the pastor was kind of losing the place. And uh, a little boy very graciously put his hand up, and he said, Jesus, <laughs> which was the answer. Now, of course, Scripture finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But whose psalm is this? Who was it written for to sing or to pray in the deepest sense, it is a psalm of Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Not because the answer is always Jesus. And just to say, this will not rob us of the experience of singing or praying this psalm. It will deepen it if we walk carefully into the pool that is singing or praying this psalm. We know it is at the deepest level a psalm of Jesus. A psalm that Jesus sings and prays from the context, what comes before in Psalm 22 and what comes after in Psalm 24. Now look with me in your Bibles. Just kind of open your Bible up, have 23 and 22 and 24 there as a, as a, a threesome. Psalm 22 how might we describe it? We might describe it as the psalm of the forsaken one or the afflicted one. Look how it begins. Do you recognize these words, Psalm 22, that comes immediately before Psalm 23? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words of Jesus that he quotes as he dies on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken 
me, the cry of the forsaken one, the afflicted one, the one who bears our sin and the wrath of God against that sin. And it's not simply these words at the beginning of Psalm 20 that take us to the cross. The whole narrative of the crucifixion draws its imagery from the forsaken one, the afflicted one of Psalm 22. So, for example, Jesus was scorned and mocked by onlookers, Psalm 22, verses 6 to 7. Jesus thirsted on the cross, Psalm 22, verse 15. Jesus' hands and feet are pierced, Psalm 22, verse 16. His garments divided and lots cast for his clothing, Psalm 22, verse 18. And we cannot read, and I don't think any of you would argue that we can read the words of Psalm 22 without hearing Jesus sing. And it shows you that you don't need to sing joyful things to sing or to pray. It is in the deepest sense, Psalm 22, a psalm of Jesus. Now, if Psalm 22 is a psalm of the forsaken one, then Psalm 24 is a psalm of the anointed king who sits on the throne. So look with me at the end of Psalm 24 from verse 7. We need to sing this again. I grew up in in Holyrood Abbey in Edinburgh singing this psalm. And I think the tune is St. George's Edinburgh. Is that right? Somebody nod. <laughs> You're all Philistines. It's a wonderful psalm. Who's it about? This psalm's not about me. Lift up your heads, O gates. Verse 7. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? It's not me. It's the Lord. Strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. And that uh, hymn to St. George's Edinburgh finishes with sevenfold hallelujahs and amen, amen, amen. That's not you. Psalm 22 in the deepest sense is a psalm of the Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a psalm in the first person that is Jesus' psalm. And Psalm 24, in the deepest sense, is not a psalm about you. It's a psalm about the coronation of uh, the king, the forsaken one, the anointed one. So what of Psalm 23, the one in the middle? Whose psalm is this? Who was it written for to sing and to pray? Well, surely in the deepest sense, Jesus. The pain of the forsaken one in Psalm 22 becomes contentment and trust in Psalm 23 before the glorious vindication in Psalm 24. There is pain. There is real pain. Darkness surrounds the suffering one, but God is his shepherd. He leads and restores. Even though the forsaken one walks through the valley of the shadow of death, God is there to guide and to rescue him. God prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies. And their defeat is so final 
and so comprehensive that he will feast in front of them. He is more than a conqueror. He is victorious and God anoints him. And so he speaks, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell, the word there might better be translated as, I will return to dwell in the house of my God forever. So Psalm 23 in the deepest sense surely is a psalm sung and prayed by the Lord Jesus. Now think of Jesus, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of Jesus at Calvary. Can you hear him praying and singing and saying these words, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even, even now, Jesus is saying in Gethsemane on the cross, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now, it is in the deepest sense a psalm of Jesus, but it is also a psalm that you and I can sing as Christians. Now, let me try and connect the two. In the New Testament, I, I, pro, I warrant, if you're anything like me, and of course you may have got this right all these years and I've got it wrong, that you, if you're anything like me, you, your immediate default is to say, this is a psalm for me to sing. But we really need to start with Jesus singing, and you see why. It's kind of in, it's kind of, it's absolutely true if you look at the bookends, the forsakenness, the anointing, and in the middle, the psalm of comfort to the Messiah. In the New Testament, the most common way of describing a Christian is someone who is in Christ. That means someone in whom the Spirit of Jesus lives. And when you become a Christian, when you come in repentance and faith to Jesus to receive the free grace of forgiveness, unmerited, undeserved, given to you out of love, when you respond in faith, all the benefits of salvation become yours, and that includes the spirit of the living Jesus that indwells your body and your soul. And from that moment of conversion, you can sing like, with, Jesus. You can pray as a Christian, or let me be a little more provocative, you can pray as a Christ-like person. You can sing this song with Jesus. What difference does it make that when you sing this wonderful shepherd psalm, that it's the song that Jesus sings? Well, as surely as God brought Jesus through the darkest valley to everlasting life, he will surely bring you through that darkest valley to everlasting life. That's the movement of the psalm, isn't it? The journey through life, through death, to resurrection. You see, God brought Jesus through that and the spirit of Jesus living in you. And it's not that God brought him through that and he promises to bring you through that. 
the, the person that God brought through that lives in you, in his person. And the Holy Spirit living in you is the guarantee of the movement in your life through death and to all eternity. And in all the dark valleys of life, and there are many before the darkest valley of all, you need fear no evil, for the Lord is with you. His rod and his staff, they will comfort you. And that experience of the Lord's comforting presence will not desert you in the darkest valley of death. Now, much more on that in the coming weeks. This is a psalm of Jesus that you can sing as a Christian. But for me, the most precious thing about singing and praying these words that are at the deepest level the song and prayer of Jesus. The thing that really gets me as I sing them, and I remember that Jesus sung them, prayed them, spoke them, loved these words, is that he experiences, understands, empathizes, sympathizes with me in my pain and my sorrow. The Spirit who helps us in our weakness, the Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, that is Jesus. Jesus praying the words of this psalm with us and for us. It's almost as if when we sing this psalm in a few minutes, the Lord Jesus takes a little bit of time apart in heaven and sings it with us. Now, how are we doing ages to go? Now, I think that makes a profound difference to how we approach this psalm. I hope you agree. Secondly, a psalm, quickly, that reveals the Lord's absolute commitment to you. That's the second thing I want us to see from the high level. A psalm that reveals the Lord's absolute commitment to you. Notice the whole orientation of the psalm. It is about what God is to you, to me. His absolute commitment to you, to me. You know, we often speak about a Christian as someone who is committed to God. What does that mean? I mean, you might think I'm committed to God, but no, I'm not really. I might think, well, not really, are we? Our commitment's like pie crust. It's flaky. We often speak about a Christian as someone who is committed to God. Psalm 23 turns that upside down. No, it doesn't. It turns it the right way up. And says that the real issue is a God who is committed to us. Once we put our lives in his hands. Doesn't this psalm show us what trust in God looks like? Surely it does. Surely it is an inspiring example of what a believer who really trusts God like David is like. Surely it does. Well, yes, it does. But that's not the primary orientation of the psalm. It is not about our trust in God. It is about the trustworthiness of God. Look at the words of the psalm with me. And let me emphasize all the times the Lord's commitment to you is expressed. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. He leads me in paths of righteousness. You are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. I will dwell in a house of the Lord forever. Again, it's as clear as is day. The psalm is about the Lord's absolute commitment to you and to me. My trust in the Lord is fickle and flimsy and fragile. I would not trust in me. But I trust in the Lord. You see, the big issue in the Bible is not primarily faith or trust, but what, and more particularly, who we put our faith and trust in the Lord. In the original Hebrew, the first and last words in the psalm are the Lord, Yahweh. And from start to finish, the psalm is about a God who powerfully and graciously and effectually and personally and closely watches over the people he is uh, committed to. Here's a great description of the psalm from an old commentary that I dusted down this week. When you're getting old like me, uh, you, uh, you reach for the old commentaries on the shelves. Lots of the, the, the new ones talk about a, a psalm with an inspiring incentive to trust. Listen to this old boy. This psalm has one theme. That's encouraging. I think it may be expressed thus. The sufficiency of God for every human need. It is indeed an unruffled song of rest. All the circumstances of our pilgrimage, want and weariness, wanderings and perplexities, the shadowed mysteries of the valleys and the thronging enemies, and the infinite beyond are recognized as we take our way through the song. What is cancelled is weariness. What we find is a resting place in green pastures, through perplexity that is guidance, and finally the path runs on until it ends, not in a tangled wilderness of doubt, but in the palace of the king. Isn't that great? See the orientation? God to us. The Lord's absolute commitment to you and me through good times, hard times, green pastures, dark valleys. How committed is God to you? We're going to spend a good 10 minutes in two weeks' time on these words. This is how committed God is to you. The end of verse 3, for the sake of his own name. That's striking. In a psalm that's all about God, to me, to me, to me, to me, it breaks out into why, for the sake of the glory of his name, for the reputation of his honor in the world, God will lead you through life, through death, and to eternity. The psalm that reveals the Lord's absolute commitment to you. You'll have noticed all the way through I'm using personal pronouns because that's the language of the psalm. It's personal between God and an individual. You know, when your kids are naughty, I'm sure your kids aren't naughty at all, uh, one of the things that you get frustrated with as a parent is when you get me, 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 me. Well, here we are in the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a little bit uncomfortable, that, isn't it? The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is not. He's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. And you go on and on and on. Me, me, me. I, I, I. It's almost embarrassing. It sounds so selfish. Now, I want to pray today that you and I, 
as individual Christians take this individual commitment from God to our hearts. The Lord is absolutely committed to you. Not to the person sitting next to you. Not to the church. Not to his glory in the world. But to you. Through thick, through thin, through good days and hard days. In this life, through death, and for all eternity. A psalm of Jesus that you can sing, a psalm that reveals the Lord's absolute commitment to you. And let me close with just a brief comment on what I've titled uh, your personal or my personal experience of what this psalm is saying. And we're going to come to this each week as we close. Your personal experience of what this psalm is saying. I want us as uh, Christians in Chalmers, to become more confident about words like experience and emotional response. Because that's how we should respond to God's truths. Is this psalm true for you? Is it your experience And you know the, the way that we will find this psalm to be deeper in our experience, here's the danger, is that we look at David's trust and we seek to deepen our trust to be like his. That's the wrong way. We will deepen our experience of this psalm if we get our heads around the fact that God is absolutely committed to you. And to me. Trust grows as we enlarge our vision of the trustworthiness of the God that we love. Faith in Jesus deepens when we grasp the depth of what it means to know Him. If you are a Christian, is this your experience? Will it be your experience? I want it to be more and more our experience. And just to say, you know me well enough, many of you, to know that I'm not talking about how we feel in response to this. You may feel nothing. Emotion and experience and consciousness of God is not the same thing as human reactions or emotions which are as befuddled and messed up by sin as anything else and sickness. Next week and the week after, and it will be two Sundays now, I want us to take time to consider thoughtfully our Christian experience, our consciousness of God, both in the green pastures of life and in the dark valleys. I want us to consider what different challenges we face in the green pastures and the dark valleys. Much more on that in the next two Sundays. But I want to close today with this one observation in terms of our experience of this psalm that comes from the form of the psalm. Just look at it as a whole as we close. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of the psalm. The Lord is referred to as 
he. Just look at it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But then from verse 4, the language changes to you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the shift is from talking about God to talking to God. It is profound as you read these words, meditate on them, even as you work through the psalm, by the Holy Spirit, working with his words, you make the movement from talking about God to talking to God. Now, we are all amateur theologians. You might claim that you're not, but I bet you are. We need to understand about God and express it in words. Expressing it in words helps us understand what God is like. But that needs to lead us to talking to him. I wonder if the take home from this first study of Psalm 23 might be the encouragement to talk more to God, to pray to God. I wonder if our prayer lives would be richer for more you and me language, intimacy, honesty with God, who we've seen is absolutely committed to us. It is a wonderful thing as we read and meditate on God's words, God's words, spoken words, that we find ourselves as we do so moved by the Spirit to talk to God in response to his words. A psalm of Jesus that you could sing, a psalm that reveals the Lord's absolute commitment to you, a psalm that helps us move from talking about God to talking to God. Now, in a moment, we're going to sing Stuart Townend's version of the psalm. It is a wonderful version of the psalm. Let me just caution us, though, against one thing. The chorus, uh, I will trust in you alone, I will trust in you alone, for your endless mercy follows me, your goodness will lead me home. Uh, the words, for your endless mercy follows me and your goodness will lead me home, are in the psalm. The words, I will trust in you alone or not. Now, they're great. But do not hang your coat on the peg of these lines in the hymn. See, that's fickle, isn't it, your trust? We need to sing, I will trust. But remember these words. And not in the psalm. They are a response to the trustworthiness of the Lord. Now, as the musicians come up, I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll stand and sing the psalm.
Our Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful, wonderful psalm. And we pray that as we give time to consider it, to meditate on it, to wrestle with its truths over these coming weeks, you would really teach us what it is to sing and to pray these words. We thank you that it is, at the deepest sense, a psalm of the Messiah, a psalm that comes between the forsaken cries of Christ and the coronation of the King. And what a difference it makes for us to sing it and pray it in Christ, knowing that He not only empathizes with us, but shared these very words. Thank you, Lord, that this psalm turns the Christian life the right way up and reminds us that you are absolutely committed to us. Help us, Lord, to hear the word me, 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 me in the psalm. And help us, Lord, be moved by your Spirit from talking and thinking about you to talking to you, to using the word you. You are our shepherd. Help us to sing now, Lord, with the mind engaged with the emotions engaged and with our wills engaged. For Jesus' sake, amen.